Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I have got to interrupt you. There's been some sort of explosion. A plane into the World Trade Center. Has crashed. Limited information. A second plane. Huge ball of fire. Oh, my God. could be on purpose. I think we have a terrorist act. I told you these bastards are coming back. It's 10 years before the 9-11 attacks. 1991, New York City. You cannot imagine how happy I was as just a new American citizen that the FBI wanted my help. This is Imad Salem. Back then, he was just another immigrant grinding his way up the economic ladder. He'd come from Egypt three years earlier and worked as a cabbie. And then he reinvented himself as an expert in security. And that was legit. He was a former colonel in the Egyptian army, and he knew how to spy on people with electronic devices. I'm very fully aware about bugs and wires and uh, cameras, hidden cameras, and that's my trade. Salem got jobs doing security, first at a department store on Fifth Avenue, where he guarded the store's secret list of holiday prices, then at a chain hotel near Times Square. Not exactly the life of a John le Carré double agent. Until... One day I got on my radio that there is a female at the front desk wanted to meet the head of the security. The hotel's clientele was heavy on Russian mobsters and KGB agents, among whom there was a certain amount of overlap. And lo and behold, Nancy Floyd walked into my office. She's an American young lady, red hair, very sharp looking. And she said, I am FBI and I need your help. Floyd was an FBI special agent. Her brief was to track Russian spies and other bad actors. She told him she needed a top-notch guy, a crack professional, to help her monitor shady doings at the hotel. I just considered it a great deal of confidence, and I said, I will do whatever you need. Perhaps by accident, she'd just activated a deeply embedded response in Imad Salem. The desire to please anyone with a badge who shows belief in his abilities. He told her, I have a master key, and that he could get her into the Russians' rooms when they were away. Floyd declined. She didn't have a search warrant. Then Salem had another idea. He told Floyd to come back after lunch. A couple of hours later, Salem handed her a stack of papers. They were copies of documents he'd removed from a briefcase in one of the Russians' rooms, taken to a Xerox machine and replaced without detection. He had also removed the cellophane wrap from a pack of cigarettes for the fingerprints and replaced it with cellophane from a fresh pack. So I think she was surprised and impressed. That's how it started. The beautiful and sometimes fraught relationship between Imad Salem and the FBI. He and Agent Floyd struck up an informal partnership Over the next nine months, he closely tracked the comings and goings of the Russians and reported them to the FBI. I never was getting any compensation for my effort, but I was proud that 
I am a mad Salem helping the American FBI. It was great honor for me. Not long after that, Salem met our cops from episode one, FBI agent John Antisev and NYPD detective Louis Napoli. They were a two-man team on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And you'll remember, they were investigating El Saeed Nosser. He was the Muslim extremist who'd assassinated a Jewish extremist in front of his supporters at a midtown Manhattan hotel. Federal and local authorities continue to try to piece together the puzzle of El Saeed Nosser, the alleged assassin of Rabbi Meir Kahana. John Miller was reporting this story for NBC News at the time, and he remembers talking to Antisev and Napoli about their investigation. It was around this point that they realized... Wait a minute. This is one of those guys that we would follow from the mosque to the Calverton gun shooting range where they were doing target practice and we were always wondering, what is this target practice for? And now he's in the middle of this thing. The Calverton shooting range, where a group of men from a Brooklyn mosque went to train with AK-47s and dreamed of joining the Mujahideen. But John Antisev understood that Nosser had raised the stakes. This is not just about people training in firearms now. One of these guys has now actually committed an overt act in our own country. And that raised another question. Does this group have other targets? And if so, how to figure out what they are? This is Blindspot, the road to 9-11. The story of the long, strange windup to the attack that remade the world and the chances we had to stop it. I'm Jim O'Grady. He said, what next? What next is up to you? I know how to make bombs. I know how to shoot guns. It was at the worst possible moment. There has been a bombshell verdict in a Manhattan courtroom tonight. Radicals who had essentially been fired up by the anti-Soviet war in search of a new cause, new enemies, new targets. Wow, this is a find and a half. Episode 2. The Mole. It was Nancy Floyd who recommended Imad Salem to FBI Special Agent John Antisev. She said that he was a very good guy, uh, trustworthy, former Egyptian army officer who immigrated to the United States. And he was uh, head of security at a hotel. Antisev and his partner, Louis Napoli, invited Salem to a get-to-know-you sit-down. Very first time, we met in a very small coffee shop and it was me, Louis, and Ahmad, and just uh, the crazy coincidence, a very young Kiefer Sutherland sitting right next to us eating a hamburger. Why he was there, I have no idea. It's just very funny. I'm going to conjecture that Kiefer Sutherland was hungry. So check out this mashed-up New York City scene. Over there, a celebrity chowing down on his burger. And over here, an Egyptian immigrant in aviator shades sitting down to what might turn out to be a life-or-death conversation. Imad Salem is 41 years old. He's a burly guy with a rocky outcrop of jaw. He'd grown up in Cairo, where he attended the American school as a boy. I was treated very nicely in my American school. It was there, he writes in his memoir, that he learned to love three things, sharp cheddar cheese, chocolate milk, and the American flag. Exclamation point. 
He was a fan of the James Bond movies and wanted to grow up to be Agent 007, except it hadn't worked out that way. He was a middle-aged man living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the bourgeois landscape of when Harry met Sally, with an American wife and two kids. Reporter John Miller says Salem, more than anything, wanted to be one of the good guys, especially if that put him in the middle of some action. So now Salem is at this diner with Aunt Seven Napoli. They start him off with a test. They showed me a picture of Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman. And they said, do you know this man? I said, yeah, this is the blind sheikh. This answer really pleased Napoli. Now, he knew exactly who he was, and our faces must have shined like, wow, we got, you know, this is a find and a half. Test passed. Salem was very familiar with the blind sheikh, a charismatic Egyptian imam associated with Islamism, a political movement that would put Islam at the center of the life and of the laws of Muslim countries. Islamism is a sprawling movement. It's taken many forms and varies from country to country, but the vast majority of Islamists are peaceful. And then there are the Islamist extremists. The blind sheikh was one of those. His name had kept cropping up in Napoli's investigation of Nocera's spiral into violence. We were just doing normal investigation work. And we got a wire back from the Egyptian intelligence stating that Nocera was an associate of Sheikh Rahman, who, by the way, is in New York. Sheikh Rahman's first home base in the United States was the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn. That's where Saeed Nasser had met him in the years leading up to the Kahana assassination. But that's not all. The police had gone to his home in Jersey City, and they had seized a bunch of boxes of, uh, of evidence from his house. 47 boxes, to be exact, in Nocera's attic. Some contained dozens of cassette tapes with diatribes in Arabic calling on Muslims to assail the West. Passages such as, cut the transportation of their countries, tear it apart, destroy their economy, burn their companies, eliminate their interests, sink their ships, shoot down their planes. The speaker was Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind sheikh. The United States effectively was in the early stages of a war that they didn't really understand was happening. CNN reporter Peter Bergen has spent decades covering the roots of modern terrorism, which he says is in part the story of cultural misreadings and missed signals by the West. The war had been declared and acted upon by jihadist militants, but we didn't kind of receive the signal. He says that in 1991, a figure like the Blind Sheikh was utterly strange to American eyes, starting with his signature look, a red fez cap with white trim and jet black shades. It was easy to write him off. The Blind Sheikh looks like a combination of Father Christmas and Ray Charles, and probably people thought, what a big deal could he be? But in fact, he was a very big deal for the people associated with the movement because he's a genuine religious scholar. Also a natural-born rabble-rouser. He'd been blinded by diabetes in childhood, but developed a commanding, convincing voice. We conquer the land of the infidels and expand Islam through the call to Allah, so that if they oppose it, then jihad for the sake of Allah it is. And any solutions other than this 
are too removed from what Allah has ordained and what was brought upon by the great Islam. Nasser's son, Zach Ebrahim, says his father fell under the spell of the blind sheikh and became his ardent follower. You know, the blind sheikh Omar Abdurrahman was one of the most influential men in the world for finding volunteers and raising funds for the war effort in Afghanistan. Once my father started to interact with the blind sheikh, our lives changed a lot. One change, Nosser spent a lot more time at the mosque in Brooklyn, the Al Farouk Mosque, which was a pillar of support for the Afghan rebels known as the Mujahideen in their war against the Soviets. The blind sheikh gave sermons there, and around this time, he'd typically tell his audiences that American foreign policy was the project of Zionists and colonialists, and he called American citizens descendants of apes and pigs. The blind sheikh was extreme, but he had his followers. At the end of his speech, a collection would be taken up for the Mujahideen. The money rolled in. These radical peoples after two things, power and money. Of course, raising money is not a crime, but agents Antasev and Napoli thought maybe something more was occurring at the Al Farouk Mosque. Maybe some of its members had turned their sights from Afghanistan to targets closer to home, and that Nasser might not be the last jihadist to mount an attack in America on Americans. Once we tie Nasser back to the Mujahideen training and the blind sheikh, it started to gel that this was an operational cell. Let's penetrate his cell and find out what's really going on. That's where Imad Salem comes in. In the Manhattan Diner, Antisev and Napoli lean in and make their pitch. Would Salem go undercover and be a mole inside what might be a terrorist cell? Could he get close to the blind sheikh, win his trust, and discover his plans? In short, would he risk his life for them? Salem said, sure, I already know how to do it. I am very well trained in that back in Egypt because I was a colonel. When you are in that rank, you lead almost 2,000 people. So you have to have a special course in security. And in that course, you learn a lot about how to infiltrate because you have to have ears and eyes among your people in your platoon to understand if the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my platoon or not. The Muslim Brotherhood. A lot of people in this story can trace their ideological roots to this group. For more than a century, they've been a major player in Egyptian politics. The Muslim Brotherhood sprang up in the 1920s. They were part of a nationalist movement to overthrow British colonial rule in Egypt and succeeded. Over time, they renounced revolutionary violence and became more of a mainstream political party. But their focus has always been on transforming Egypt based on a strict interpretation of Islam. Imad Salem had a harsh view of the Muslim Brotherhood. He considered them enemies of the state and says that as an Egyptian army officer, he was on the lookout for infiltrators from the Brotherhood. We see that the history of terrorism in Egypt started by creating the Muslim Brotherhood as a political, religious organization 
and they used violence to convey their message. The Muslim Brotherhood had a contentious relationship with Egyptian President Anwar al-Sadat, and the blind sheikh detested him. In 1981, the sheikh was still boiling with rage over Sadat's decision to make peace with Israel three years earlier by signing the Camp David Accords. The sheikh despised the deal, and he was not alone, according to CIA intelligence officer Arturo Munoz. With the peace agreement, it was a fundamental realignment in that we are now going to accept Israel, their right to exist. We're now going to have a normal relationship with Israel. There was a segment of, of diehard Islamists who just couldn't accept that. So the blind sheikh issued a fatwa. It said a heretical leader deserved to be killed by the faithful. He didn't mention the Egyptian president by name, but members of an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood took it as their cue to kill Sadat. Imad Salem says he was there when it all went down. In Cairo, he was in full-dress uniform, taking part in a military parade. Suddenly, four rogue soldiers jumped out of trucks and rushed the presidential reviewing stand. They threw grenades and cut down Sadat in a hail of bullets. I was three to 400 feet from the stage where he was assassinated on because I was among the troops securing the parade. I was so very angry. It changed my life. I just went one day to his graveyard and I promised him revenge. I was happy to infiltrate people who are followers of the blind sheikhs because the blind sheikhs commit the biggest catastrophe to my life assassinating my president on my watch. Sitting in the diner, Iman Salem realized this was his chance for payback. He knew that the sheikh was dangerous, and it gave him this sense of patriotic foreboding. As he'd later write, I will not allow anyone to try to harm my America. You will have to deal with me. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Blindspot, the road to 9-11. In 1981, the blind sheikh inspired the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar el-Sadat. In the aftermath of the crime, the sheikh was rounded up with 300 others. 24 defendants, including the sheikh, were held in a cage in a Cairo courtroom and tried for the killing. The blind sheikh led his fellow defendants in chanting, There is no God but Allah and urged them to keep faith with their version of jihad. There will be no God. 
We can't but have faith in jihad for the sake of Allah and the people of truth. Imad Salem, a witness to the assassination, followed the trial closely. Some of the assassins who took a direct role were hung to death. The Egyptian government executed five of the conspirators, two by hanging and three by firing squad. Salem was fine with that part of the verdict, but not the other outcome. Some of them were able to be released like the blind sheikh. The sheikh had sanctioned such an act, but he hadn't pulled the trigger. So the court let him off. Salem had a hard time letting that go. So he kept tabs on his nemesis. He knew the sheikh had been under house arrest in Egypt until 1986 and then charged with inciting a riot in 1989. Soon after, the sheikh pulled off a daring escape. By one account, his supporters put him in a washing machine that they were pretending to take out for repair and then smuggled him out of the country. He landed in Sudan. But now it's 1991, New York City. Iman Salem is sitting in a diner with a pair of law enforcement officers who want to pay him $500 a week to get close to the sheikh and win his trust. But Salem is confused. Are these guys telling me they want me to move to Sudan? John Antisif told me, well, unfortunately, he is here in America. I said, how come? He is a terrorist. Good question. The blind sheikh was on a State Department watch list for his role in the Sadat assassination. That should have been a waving red flag for embassy officials. But somehow, it wasn't. In the spring of 1990, when he applied to travel here, the U.S. consulate basically said, no problem, have a tourist visa. If there is ever a museum of the war on terror, that visa should be in it. The visa that opened the door for the cataclysm to come. I'd put it in its own glass case with a little spotlight and a label that reflected the debate that continues to this day about how this guy, of all people, got his paperwork approved. There are, as they say, competing theories. Number one, spy stuff. Press reports would later claim that the CIA basically ushered the blind sheikh into America. Perhaps it was their way of thanking him for helping to kick the Russians out of Afghanistan. Or maybe the CIA wanted to develop the sheikh as an asset, a turncoat they could exploit for information. There was also the feeling that this guy had the ambition and the following to possibly wind up on top in Egypt. So we might need to keep an eye on him, even get on his good side. Later, at a congressional hearing, CIA officials were asked about it and denied everything, as of course they would. Theory number two. I think mostly the blind shake got in the United States because of bureaucratic incompetence. Steve Call is the author of Ghost Wars, an essential book on 9-11. It cites a federal commission that compiled a mind-boggling list of screw-ups that smoothed the blind shake's way into the country. Everything from rubber stamping a fake passport to that time a consular officer looked him up and down and decided he was, quote, a charming little old man. Part of the reason he got in was just that the people reviewing his application didn't recognize who he was and didn't connect him to the watch list that uh, he was on. That's what the CIA told Congress. They even blamed a cumbersome microfiche machine at the embassy in Khartoum. They said it prevented them from finding the sheikh's file. Not everyone bought it, 
As a critic of the agency put it to a reporter after the hearing, left with the choice between pleading stupidity or else admitting deceit, the CIA went with stupidity. Letting the blind shake enter the U.S. was a mistake. But was it low-level bungling or overreach by senior intelligence officials? It's a question that dogs this entire story. In a later episode, you'll hear me ask it again. It'll be when I try to figure out who knew that two of the 9-11 hijackers had entered the country but didn't stop them. And this at a time when every warning sign said, big attack coming. Was it simply poor communication between government agency staffers? Or was the CIA trying to turn the dangerous pair into assets and then blew it? This is the great mystery. FBI agent Mark Rossini. One thing I've always wanted to understand, what does the CIA know? So do we. But that comes later. At the moment, it's still 1991. A young Kiefer Sutherland eats a hamburger at a Manhattan diner, a diner that has just hosted a consequential meeting for the FBI. Imad Salem, an Arabic-speaking security expert with electronic surveillance skills, has agreed to go undercover. His high-risk mission is to insert himself as a mole inside the blind sheikh's circle of jihadists. But how? FBI agent John Antasev and NYPD detective Louis Napoli have an idea. It starts with the trial of Saeed Nosser in Manhattan Criminal Court for the murder of Rabbi Meyer Kahana and the angry protests it's provoking. New York City police said about 60 people demonstrated outside the courtroom today and a scuffle erupted between A street fight between Jewish and Muslim activists broke out while jury selections got underway. Antisev and Napoli instruct Salem to join the crowd outside and dive into the tumult. Here's Napoli. What happened was now Nasser goes to trial. And you had an influx of Muslims outside the um, courthouse on one side. And on the other side, you had uh, people from the Jewish community on the other side, both Rant and Raven. There's CNN video of the wild scene outside the courthouse. And you do not have to look hard to see Salem in the middle of it. He is the large man on the Muslim side, cursing a cop. The cop's reply is to menace him with a nightstick. Outside the frame, but standing nearby, is Ibrahim El-Jabrani, an influential figure in jihadist circles. He's also the cousin of Saeed Nasser. Now, Ibrahim El-Jabrani was a guy with a, a long beard, uh, older than Nasser. He is talking to the lawyers and visiting Nasser in prison. Impressed by Salem's aggression, El-Jabrani takes the bait. The first day or two being there, uh, he asked them, We've never seen you before. Who are you? Why why are you here? And then he responded, well, that he was here to make amends with with God for wasting his life serving a uh, illegitimate government of Egypt. Creating a backstory, part real and part fabricated, this part of the job Salem loved. He crafted his undercover persona as carefully as a screenwriter. I surrounded myself with some rumors that I'm a jeweler in a jewelry business means I have money. I'm an ex-military green berets that mean two things. I know how to make bombs. I know how to shoot guns. 
Salem's performance quickly won Elger Brownie's confidence, so much so that Salem often found himself at Elger Brownie's side and able to record his movements. Miller explains that led to the discovery of an intriguing foreign connection. We're now kind of waiting for the Nocere trial, and Elger Brownie goes overseas to Peshawar in Pakistan and, you know, is meeting with Osama bin Laden. Gabrani meets with him and says, you know, we're raising money for the defense fund for El Sayed Nosser, my nephew who shot Kahani. And the investigation reveals he got about $20,000 of that money and brought it back. There he is, Osama bin Laden, the great white whale of 9-11. It's the first inkling we have that from the other side of the world, he's taken an interest in funding jihadists in America. The first hint that this wealthy Saudi with ties to the Afghan war is acting on a grudge against the U.S. and its allies. Now remember, we're talking the early to mid-90s now. Nobody in New York or very much in Washington really understood who Osama bin Laden even was, let alone who he was going to be. By appearances, Bin Laden is little more than a ripple on the surface of this story. But now he's there, with his agenda already in place, speaking in highborn Arabic in a soft voice, very different from the hectoring tone of other jihadists. Bin Laden described it most simply in 1999. I am at war with and have animosity, hate, and resentment for the Americans. War, he says. The scene around the Nasser trial felt like a skirmish. Outside, protesters hurled insults and brawled with each other. Inside, the defendants served up tabloid titillation by sitting in court and as the proceedings went on around him, calmly drawing sketches of Princess Diana, the people's princess. Nobody knew why. Then the jury delivered its verdict and everything got worse. There has been a bombshell verdict in a Manhattan courtroom tonight. The man accused of killing radical Rabbi Mayor Kahani has been acquitted of murder. The jury felt that not enough evidence was preserved by police the night of the attack. The defense had made much of the fact that witnesses originally said the gunman was Jewish because he was wearing a yarmulke. Nasser's attorney used that confusion to propose an alternative theory of the shooting, that it was carried out by one of the rabbi's supporters or maybe a rival. Anyway, it was enough to sow reasonable doubt among members of the jury. The judge was furious. Judge Alvin Schlesinger referred to the jury's murder acquittal as devoid of common sense and logic. Giving Muslim El Sayyid Nasser the maximum sentence for a string of lesser charges. The lesser charges included assault for shooting the men who tried to block his escape, along with illegal gun possession. The judge sentenced Nasser to up to 22 years which he began serving in Attica Prison in upstate New York. By this time, Salem and Elger Brownie were tight. Salem also had the confidence of the men who had joined Nasser at the Calverton shooting range, and all of them agreed. Salem should now visit Brother Saeed in prison. Saeed's cousins took him. And uh, they introduced me as a brother I met. He's a good Muslim. He is an ex-army and Sayyid Nusir accepted me as a friend, and I mean, they trust me. 
they're saying, well, so, you know, what next? And he said, what next? What next is up to you? Verbatim words on Sayyid Nusir, I had done my part. Now it is your duty to do that jihad. Jihad in the militant sense. In some ways, Nusser was more influential in prison than out of it. His fellow jihadists viewed him as a hero. In return, he browbeat them to follow in his footsteps. For example, he said, you know, someone should kidnap former President Richard Nixon and hold him hostage until the authorities agree to free me from prison. As John Miller dryly notes in his book, The Cell, perhaps Nosser had been misinformed about how most Americans felt about Nixon. But Antisev says the plots got more realistic after that and potentially deadly. It eventually morphed into them asking Imad to make 12 pipe bombs. And then it became a serious issue. Sayyid Nusser described to me how to buy the ingredients in Chinatown. So I bought fuse, I bought some ingredients, and I went back to John. Salem told John Antisev there was a hit list. It included Nusser's trial judge, a U.S. senator, and other politicians. And the blind sheikh had greenlit the operation. That alarmed Antisev. They wanted to kill 12 people. Uh, It was starting to really get intense. Decision time. Should the FBI immediately break up the plot and try to get convictions with the evidence they had? Mostly testimony from Imad Salem? Maybe. But the Nasser trial had just shown them you can have multiple eyewitnesses to a very public murder and it might not be enough. So what should the FBI do? What their bosses are saying is, okay, so that's really interesting, but we need to get this on tape. The decision was, go back and record the suspects discussing their murderous conspiracy. Salem was the obvious guy to do it. But when he thought about the risk for himself and for his family, his blood froze. They start to ask me to wear a wire And I understood that once I wear a wire, I have to testify in court. If I testify in court and my identity became public, then Sheikh Omar's followers in Cairo, they will kidnap my sister and behead her. Napoli remembers this is when an agitated Salem took him aside and told him, This is why I can't and won't wear a wire. And so this is when um, supervision in the bureau said, well, we'll let you go. Antisev and Napoli's bosses would not compromise. Their decision was firm. Cut ties with Salem. When I heard Ahmad was gone, I said, I, I can't believe it. And I was so, you know, disheartened and nervous and mad. I mean, I let them know exactly what I thought. I said, this is insane. I said, you know, you have a guy that's worked his butt off, you know, getting us this information, and God only knows what else is out there, and we're stopping this? The suits up there have no idea about surveillance, no idea about intelligence gathering. Reporter John Miller. If you have a plot unfolding that may involve terrorism, and you have one source who's inside, not three, not two, just one, 
the question you would ask looking back is, can you really afford to fire him? Salem's kiss-off to the FBI was blunt. Guys, when the bomb been built by somebody else and it goes off, don't come and knock on my door. So now Antisevin Napoli knows something is in the works. But what? And where? And when? Losing Salem was crippling. Now, the fun part of this is, is we have nobody else in here. It was the worst possible moment to lose Ahmad. Antisev and Napoli decided they didn't have time to try and place another mole. Besides, Imad Salem's don't come along every day. But doing nothing was too risky. So they decided to force the issue. The first thing Louis and I did was we went to the U.S. Attorney's Office and we got subpoenas for everybody involved in the 12 pipe bombs. Put them in a room where their pictures that were taken by surveillance were all over the walls. We figured, wow, these guys come in and they see their pictures. Uh-oh, the FBI's got pictures of me? It would have stopped you. Yeah, you'd think so. But that didn't happen. Unfortunately, we were thinking like Americans. We were thinking Western. I reflect on this often. When I met Muhajadeen, and these were former Muhajadeen, they ran into Russian machine gun fire. They went behind the lines to kill Russians a harsh interview from me and Louie is nothing compared to the experiences they had on the battlefield. These men were hardened. That was obvious. But it was not obvious at all that there were more cells than the one at Al-Farouk and that they belonged to an international network of jihadists determined to turn on their former patron, the United States, the country that had helped make their victory in Afghanistan possible. It was an act of betrayal, no question. Or so you'd say if you were thinking like an American, thinking Western. But what if you weren't? What if you were thinking like the blind sheikh? Then you'd understand his view of the world in 1991. The West had just won the Cold War and looked strong. But that was deceptive. Sure, the United States bullied Middle Eastern countries and overthrew their governments. But Islamists could overthrow governments, too. That's what the Iranian Revolution had accomplished 12 years earlier. The Sheikh envisioned a wave of Islamic takeovers in the Middle East, starting with Egypt, which he would one day rule. And what was the Middle East anyway? Countries artificially created by the West after World War I, as Arturo Munoz of the CIA points out. The Europeans divided up the Muslim world in colonies. This was humiliating. The blind sheikh said, don't be fooled by the West's invincible aura. In reality, they're weak, addicted to materialistic and sensuous pursuits. The sheikh was fond of quoting Saeed Qutb, the Muslim Brotherhood's authoritative theorist. Qutb had surveyed the sweep of modern history and written, the turn of Islam and the Muslim community has arrived. The great psychological impact of the jihad in Afghanistan is that for the first time it showed the Muslims can win, the jihadists can win, the Mujahideen won against the Soviet army. Author Steve Call says the result was loose networks of these radicals who had essentially been fired up by the anti-Soviet war 
uh, in search of a new cause, in search of new enemies, new targets, and uh, constantly in conversation with one another, doing the same thing in several places in the early 90s. And one of those places was New York City. Imad Salem had deftly set himself up as a mole in the Al-Farouk cell, only to be pulled out by the FBI at a crucial moment. But some in the cell didn't realize he was gone yet, so he kept hearing chatter. They continued for a month after I walked out, calling me every day, hey brother, you gotta come to finish what you started. Uh, Sayyid Nusir called me from Attica prison. Brother, don't be afraid. Uh, I have a lot of money to hire attorneys for you if something goes wrong. Brother, you gotta come finish cooking. And of course, I'm not a cook. What I was cooking is about to build a pub. Salem found it hard to let go. Every time I get these calls, I call John Antisiv, and I immediately reported that to John. Then the calls stopped coming. What Salem would learn too late, along with the FBI, is that the cell had found a new cook. When Ahmad uh, left the group in July of of 92, another individual came in uh, September, and that person was Ramzi Yosef. Also known as Ramzi Youssef. He was born in Kuwait, schooled in Great Britain in electrical engineering and trained at Mujahideen camps in Afghanistan in how to blow things up. Camps organized and funded by Osama bin Laden. Youssef was 24 years old in late 1992 when he stepped off a plane at JFK airport. He had scars on his hands and face from previous mishaps with explosives. And he was dressed in a pair of oversized pants and a billowy shirt. An FBI agent later said Youssef had been trying to look like a poor Arab refugee wearing his only good clothes. It worked. Youssef presented an Iraqi passport and said he needed asylum from persecution by the Saddam Hussein regime. Customs agents wanted to hold him in lockup until he could be questioned at a hearing. But the lockup was full. So they released him on a promise that he'd come back. And where does Ramsey Youssef go? He goes to the Al-Salam Mosque. The Al-Salam Mosque in Jersey City, the mosque that Saeed Nasser first joined, the mosque that the blind sheikh had recently moved to and made his new home base. Ramzi Youssef arrived with a hefty resume, reporter John Miller. He's an expert bomb maker. He's an expert plotter. He's the Mozart of terrorism. And now he's found his way into this cell. And he said, why do seven little attacks? when you could do one really big one. Why indeed? Ramzi Youssef sat down with the blind sheikh and pitched a new plan. The sheikh listened and supported it. The old plot to assassinate politicians canceled. Youssef had been set loose to make the attack of his dreams come true. He got to work. Next time on Blind Spot, the road to 9-11. Imad Salem goes deep undercover. I used to go to the blind shake at 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning, clean up his house, cook for him. And discovers something big. 
Imad calls us, he says, you're not going to believe this. He says, it's not over. They want to do more. Blind Spot, The Road to 9-11 is a co-production of History and WNYC Studios. Our team includes Jenny Law, Ursula Summer, Joe Plourd, David Lewis, and Michelle Harris. The music is by Isaac Jones. The podcast is based on the TV documentary Road to 9-11, produced by Left Right for History, and was made possible by executive producers Ken Druckerman and Banks Tarver. Special thanks to Eli Lair, Jesse Katz, Jennifer Gorin, Celia Muller, Emily Botine, and Sara Kari. Thanks also to Will Chase and NPR's Research, Archives, and Data Strategy team for archival audio research, and to Steve Emerson for providing some of the archival audio, including that of Omar Abdul Rahman, used in this episode. Additional archival footage from WPIX. All of our Arabic-language tape was independently translated by Lara Atala. Our voiceover actors this episode were Louis Salan and Youssef Kamal. I'm Jim O'Grady. Thanks for listening. Yeah, come in. Yeah. Oh, hi. Thank you for the hug. That's it? You just came to hug me? Yeah. All right. (laughs) You winked at me on his way out the door.